Cheers. Cheers. I um, am quite upset to report that one of the cases that, that I have been watching and that we have in our newsletter, which, by the way, we have an amazing newsletter on uh, nrlawyers.com about sexual assault law and, and what's going on. One of the cases to watch was a case called RVSS. And we're going to talk about the decision that came out from the Supreme Court on this particular case. Yeah, so uh, it started out as a trial where the um, individual was alleged to have sexually assaulted his niece between the ages of six and eight. He was living in the home with his niece and the uh, the mother. And um, allegations came out that um, she had said that she was sexually assaulted. And it went to uh, to trial. And uh, the complainant. Um, so this is the main issue. Yeah, the complainant uh, attended a preliminary inquiry. So let's just explain the good old days. Right. So in, the, in the good old days, prior to Justin Trudeau eliminating preliminary inquiries in sexual assault cases, um, in a case, you still have it in sexual interference. So I should be careful about that. And aggravated sexual assault. And aggravated sexual assault. But so in a sexual assault case or an interference case, you can have a prelim, which is where you get to ask questions of a complainant this young girl would have the statement go in under 715, which says a section of the code, you can put the statement in, but the accused- They just play the video from the police They statement. play the video, but the accused still has the right to ask questions of the complainant. Cross-examine. Right. At the prelim- Which is the most powerful tool of justice, <laughs> as some people have said. It is. It is absolutely the most powerful mechanism for dealing with and- uncovering false accusations and to getting at the truth. It absolutely is the most important instrument in the criminal justice system, bar none. Engine of truth finding, as Wigmore put it. God, Wigmore was good. Um, so the prelim, the prelim comes. Go Google Wigmore if you want to. <laughs> and the, the complainant uh, testifies about the video and says, I don't remember it. I don't remember saying any of this. I don't remember these events. And then is cross-examined and maintains this position. Goes to trial. Complainant then um, is seen by a psychologist. And it's maybe with art therapy. <laughs> it wasn't, but uh, this was a proper psychologist, a PhD who deals with children in trauma. And uh, an application was brought. This is something important. I'm just going to tie this in in a minute. But an application was brought to have the statement, the video, go in as evidence. And the complainant not in the testify trial in the trial proper so that the complainant would not testify to save her from being traumatized. Okay. And the uh, psychologist was called to establish that this was necessary and also gave evidence that the manner in which the statement was taken was uh, an appropriate way uh, in accordance with the protocol for interviewing child witnesses where there was no leading um uh, no leading questions that would taint the evidence. I'm going to stop in just one yeah, second I was and let you guys you take over. That. But I just want to say this because we get this question a lot and it still continues in spite of us talking about it a million times. Um, clients will come to us or we will get questions to say there is no evidence. Yeah. How is this even going to trial? Because they have no evidence. She just said something. There's no evidence. Literally in tons of these cases. In fact, we happen to be dealing with an individual today who who was found not guilty on a case, but was still complaining that there was no evidence against them and still can't get the head wrapped around the fact 
that why it even went to trial right can't get the head wrapped around the fact and i'm not being critical but it's so important to understand in in our in in, in law period criminal law that a statement of a complainant the statement the word spoken in an interview and sometimes spoken to somebody else in certain circumstances is absolutely evidence and in this particular case without cross-examination resulted in conviction so i want to make it clear so that people who are watching this and if our clients happen to watch it that is evidence don't mistake that don't underestimate and it it's a now our new thing if you don't understand that you're wrongfully confused <laughs> that's a good one but it's really important to understand this concept uh, and there's a good reason that people can give statements and can form the basis of a prosecution and a conviction because people sometimes are abused in circumstances where there's not going to be a camera, where there won't be other evidence. So we understand this, but it's something that people have to understand. These things are statements. And in this case, there's a big debate as to he was found guilty at trial, appealed to the Court of Appeal, 2-1 decision, was found not guilty. Acquittal substitute. Well, acquittal substitute. Sent to the Supreme Court of Canada. And conviction restored. With how much reasons given? Uh, f substantially for the reasons given by Justice McPherson at the Court of Appeal, we would allow the appeal. Justice Rowe would dissent substantially for the reasons of Justice Feldman. Well, you're saying the names of the justices. They just said for the reasons of the majority, the reasons of the dissent. That's it was true. Like, it was so short. I actually listened to it just to make sure I didn't miss anything. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, when you're when you're taking an acquittal away from an individual, which by the way, you can actually go on the Supreme Court website and you can actually watch uh, the webcasts. Yeah. And, and it's a good see point. For yourself and it's interesting to, to do because it gives you a good education. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're sort of of the opinion, and with respect, we dis we we think it's important that in something where you take away the acquittal. And especially in a situation like this, some form of written reasons would be helpful. And especially on a Crown appeal as well. Um, yeah. the, the, the way that it normally works is that the Crown has very limited appeal rights in Canada. Um, and they can only... Gen the, the can you general explain that a little bit more? Okay. So generally speaking, the That's Crown can only appeal on a question of law. If they think that the trial judge... Um, here... If the witness says the sky is is green, and which it might be, sometimes. and the trial judge says, "I well, I accept Mr. Smith's evidence. The sky is indeed green," and somehow that leads to a criminal conviction, the Crown can't appeal that. That's a mistake of fact. Um, they, you can't appeal that. It, it, you can only appeal on a question of law. So if you don't have that question of law. Um, then you you don't the crown does not have a right of appeal. Not even normally it's pretty hard to get to the Supreme Court, but for the crown in a criminal proceeding, it's actually fairly difficult even to get to the court of appeal. I gotta say, Liam, that was actually really well described. Yeah. Let's set this up a little bit, just simply for the principles at play. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, a person who is six or eight years of age, mm -hmm. they're of tender years, they're very vulnerable, and we're not saying that a conviction should not necessarily have been restored in this case but there are concerns about it and I think there's concerns about how we deal with reliability of statements and how you know as we've been asked by our viewers sometimes to explain areas of law how a statement can actually be introduced as evidence in and of itself without cross-examination so let's explore that a little bit so to, to start we're going to go back to the 90s uh, in a case called uh, the Queen and Khan 
in that case, it's a, a bit of a sad circumstance, but um, what, what happened in that circumstance, it's a case about hearsay. And as we've discussed before, hearsay is an out-of-court statement that is relied for upon for the truth of its contents. So, as an example, um, someone tells Diana, I killed Mr. Smith. That happens all the time. Diana is then called as a crown witness to prove the fact that Mr. Smith was in fact killed by the declarant, the person who makes the statement to the person testifying in court. That is wholly inadmissible into evidence, and here's why. As we discussed earlier, cross- Or at least should be. Or at least- at Sometimes least, it sneaks in I, these days. Well, that we, we haven't gotten to the principled approach yet. Right? Um, so, the, the idea behind this, and, and as we discussed before, cross-examination is incredibly important in terms of the Anglo-American system of, uh, of a trial, of the truth-finding process, because the- the witness gives their story uh, with as little interference from counsel as possible when they're giving their evidence in chief. And then... Well, you just said that. I'm sorry, but I'm going to break you down a little bit more. Okay. So w when I try to explain to people what to expect when they go to court, <clears throat> in chief, when you call your own witness, you have to ask open-ended questions. Right. So mm -hmm. you can't actually suggest to them what they should be saying. Mm -hmm. So so in this case, a crown would be calling a witness, and the witness will testify in answer to very simple, straightforward questions. Mm -hmm. And then comes cross-examination. Which totally is when different story. the oppo opposing counsel gets the chance to ask these difficult questions and demonstrate that the witness is either mistaken or not telling the truth or somewhere in between. Now, con. In that case, uh, the, again, sad story, um, a small child emerges from the doctor's office. Um, she has a stain on her shirt, and she makes a statement to her mother to the effect of Dr. Khan put his private parts in my his mouth. His birdie, I think she said. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then something came out. The child w was... Three and a half. Three couldn't, and a half. Couldn't testify. So, like, hard bar that, that is too young to show up in court. That statement of the child was put into evidence through the mother. And this case gave rise to what in Canada is known as the principled approach to hearsay. There, there's traditionally all these different hearsay exceptions. Um, so for instance, if someone is dying and says, Mr. Smith did it, that can go in. What's That's called a dying Mr. declaration. Smith? Yeah, you I, like Smith today? I, I, I just I just choose something because I don't want to use the name of an actual. But, you know, let's not go through all of them because we want to sort of focus yeah. on the case. But there's a number of exceptions mm -hmm. to it. But Khan introduced a new principled approach to admitting hearsay, mm -hmm. and in this case, it had some some supporting evidence, not just from the the actual statement though. Is like there was the stain on the shirt. <laughs> well, it you tend to you, in order to admit it was it, spontaneous was actually mm -hmm. the main thing. To say in order it. to admit the evidence, you have to look at generally two issues, right? It has to have threshold reliability, mm -hmm. and what else? Well, I, I would put it, uh, I, I wouldn't get, go to the reliability first. I would go to the necessity first. So necessity. Well, it's obvious. Three and a half year old can't testify. Well, but, so, but yeah. I mean, when you're, when you're trying to admit something through the principled approach, it has to be necessary in one way or another. So um, the witness, the, the declarant, the person who made the statement is too young to testify. 
or they're dead. That's a pretty common one. Or they're gonna to be too traumatized by yeah. testifying, which, which was something. So let's say you prove the necessity, then you have to look at reliability. Yes, and that there's a couple different ways. That but let, let, let's just break it down though, because okay. like, because we can get too technical and I know you want to get there, but just like, you know, so in con, there was other extrinsic evidence that sort of supported what was said to the mother. There was a stain, it was spontaneous. And also, the mother didn't say, what's that stain on your shirt? The, the child said something first, the stain was discovered later. Right, there was because a spontaneous... Because that would be a little bit different if actually the mother had said something to elicit a response. Right, it was a spontaneous utterance by the child when coming out of the of the examination mm -hmm. room. So there are sometimes other factors or indicia that gives rise to reliability. And so there's, you know, whether the process that's used is reliable and that there's some sort of substantive reliability to it. And that can can mean a number of things. But, but let's sort of hone in here. So, so we've got this situation where this young girl gives a fairly detailed statement to police mm -hmm. about what happened and it's detailed and one of the factors is that she describes and uses terminology and sexual acts that one not expect a six to eight year old to know hopefully right. god willing yeah um and so that gave reliability to it mm -hmm. um and then the the judge in the trial also found that uh, based upon the psychologist evidence the officer followed a proper protocol. Therefore, it's admissible. And he didn't pay, the judge didn't pay that much attention to the lack of contemporaneous cross-examination or cross-examination at trial. So it got in. Mm -hmm. But what I'm interested about here is why, if we can say it in a succinct way, why the Court of Appeal thought this was bad and why the dissent in the Court of Appeal said, no, this should go in. My and this is, my and this is to, and I'm sorry, just one other thing. And this is to underscore the importance of people understanding just how statements in and of themselves can be admitted and lead to a conviction. My understanding was that there were issues about um, the girl wanting to have live with her mother and not liking her uncle. And that uh, there was a, a little song that was sung, which they had some lyrics. Excuse me. <coughs> there were some lyrics from this little song when she was left alone in the room, which, you know, Gave a little bit of um, reality to a potential motive to fabricate. So that's that's the majority. So the majority of the Court of Appeal were concerned about, one, over-reliance on the psychologist to say that this was just a generally reliable process and that there were concerns here that the child might have gleaned information about sexual acts and sexual organs from friends because the mother testified and may have been exposed to that through another source. And in fact, there may have been some animus because there was arguments in the home and that the little girl may have very much had a bad relationship with the uncle and wanted the uncle out. And then as you said, she sings a song when I think one of the officers steps out of the room to speak to somebody else, which involves, I want to live with my mom, I don't want to live with my uncle, you know, that type of thing. And so... Which is equally consistent with... Um, could be. You know, a motive to fabricate, but also consistent with not wanting to live with him because he did something to her. And the the majority in the Court of Appeal had concerns also about the fact that the, the young girl had said at the preliminary inquiry, uh, you know, I don't remember giving a statement. I don't remember the contents of the statement. I don't remember this happening. And had admitted to the psychologist when being interviewed that she purposely lied uh, at the preliminary inquiry. The reason for that was then after she gave this statement, the poor girl got plucked out of the mom's home and put into foster care. By Children's Aid Society. So, so the Court of Appeal said, look, there's, there's hallmarks here or indicia that it may not be 
reliable, mm -hmm. that in fact there could be a motive to fabricate, and the judge at trial said there's no motive to fabricate, and we have concerns about this, and that the judge did not pay more attention to the need for cross-examination and apply his mind to other substitutes for that that could maybe give more fairness to the trial. And the other thing we should say, by the way, at trial, is the accused didn't testify, which is something we say, hmm, it's not a good idea. Accused have to testify. Now, my concern in this case, I, I think, I mean, there's a lot of potential that the, the court was correct in this and that this was... Well, let's know, talk about the dissent for a second. What did my, the dissent say? Um, they just said that they found they found the statement compelling. And that's one of the things when we're reading it, we, we don't have the benefit of actually seeing the, the statement mm -hmm. and, uh, and observing. And this is why we give deference to trial judges because they're there and they can observe, right? Well, but McPherson, uh, Justice McPherson, actually does a, 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 you know, a fairly reasonable analysis. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's, uh, he, he essentially discusses how in the circumstances, whenever you're reading a case about hearsay, and um, I will try to keep this as not technical as possible. Yeah, because, you know. Yeah. Your, I'll translate for you as you go. <laughs> the big question is going to be, do we have sufficient reason to believe that in this case, we can let this evidence in without it being tested by cross-examination? And... I, I, Which I is a high bar. Yeah. As it, it should can. be. So, and I mean, in this case, we do have, we, we have some of those things. We have, uh, it, it's videotaped, so we know exactly what was said. You can see it and you can you can hear it. Um, and can you can observe see, it. You can see her demeanor when she's giving the evidence. Um, it, she, she promised the officer to tell the truth, and there was nothing in the statement that demonstrated a an inability to distinguish between the truth and a lie mind you we've talked before about how simple that is yeah it is um but uh, they it, just say you know what you know if, if i said the sky was red mm -hmm. yeah would you say that was true or not true they're like oh that's not true it's blue and they're like okay you're good to go but right. so, but yeah. sometimes you do read statements where it's like oh are my pants pink right now yes are my pants actually pink no they're black so that's not truth if, uh, and I and I've taken I have a picture of this happening on my phone. Can you point to your phone? Yeah, it's a cookie. Yeah, <laughs> we have uh, that in a case right now. Yeah. Um, so with uh, but but in this case, one of the other big things that was relied upon, and it was just touched upon by Joseph right now, in cases like Con and this one, one of one of the things that matters a lot is if a child is essentially giving evidence of sexual acts that there isn't a good explanation as to how they came to know the nature of these sexual acts. You, you don't necessarily anticipate an eight-year-old child to know in great detail certain terminology to refer to people's genitals. You don't necessarily expect them to understand what the act of sexual intercourse is. And then when they're describing that act without using those words, it, it, it can give, it can serve as an indicia of uh, substantive reliability. We're talking really young though, because the internet exists now. So, so that's a great point. So, so, so just in this case, you know, the dissent, which was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada to restore the conviction said, you know, when you look at this as a whole, it's a very impressive statement. Not, there's really no leading by the police officer. There was no incentive for her to lie at the time because she was still within her mother's care. That, that always kind of gets me is like, 
this whole thing of um, motive to lie. Yeah, I know. Yeah, this is what the dissent. Yeah, we should talk about motive to lie and, and a proven absence of motive. So let's talk about that in a moment. But so so there was you know there was a sound analysis by the dissenting judge in the court of appeal, who's very uh, learned and a smart guy, um, and um, I have a lot of respect for. And so it was upheld. So this is an interesting example where we're kind of on the fence as to whether the Supreme Court of Canada made the right decision. I think we think in this case, uh, you know, there were there were issues and there were problems. Uh, it would have been better if the accused had testified and we'd have more information in which to make the decision on. But this leads to a couple of other issues. And one of them that we always face is, is motive to fabricate. And, um, and I think that's something we should explore because here, it, talk about that and then the other one other thing I want to talk about is at what tender age do you say that a complainant and we're speaking about you know and cases involving children are particularly heinous and have to be scrutinized carefully because the victimization of children is you know abhorrent that said we deal with cases and we have to also ensure that there's due process right but we have this called the internet and social media and TikTok and all sorts of other craziness, which exposes anybody who has access to it to incredible amounts of information about they would never have known 20 years ago. And we know that all you need to do to get access to pornographic material is to say that you're 18 years old to say, sure. Yeah, unless you know, there's, the parents... There's no absolute proof of it. So. Yeah, it's so, so easy for somebody. I and mean, they're getting younger and younger at the exp you know, being exposed to this thing. But we're looking at like really, really young kids yeah. who... No, I know, but but like, you know, it, it it's not unheard of that like a seven-year-old on a play date brings its iPad over, his or her iPad over, which doesn't have parental protections on it, and they're just playing on gonna happen. and then they start looking at it. I mean, that happens, and, and it's something we have to be attuned to. And I didn't just mean to promote Apple. I mean, I know Samsung has a pad like that, too, or any other company. But, um, and I don't have Apple. I have Samsung. If you want to sponsor this podcast, please let me know. But, um, you know, like, this is reality now in this day and age that, that, that you know, uh, my children, when they were eight or nine, would, would go, like, give me your phone, Dad. I'll can teach you how to turn it back on properly or or do a hard what's it called a I hard reboot a hard reset a hard reset i actually bought a phone once and i said to the to the employee i was buying it from i want a phone that doesn't make me feel stupid as <laughs> 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 actually that's the only parameter i had i just don't want to have my phone I, I, actually the first time i got one where you tilt it sideways or whatever and you get the full I don't even know how to make that happen. I, like, I, have full I, I don't know how to make it stop from happening, the anti-rotation. I, I dropped something and I went to pick it up and my phone went sideways. I was like, oh my God, it <laughs> does that. magic. Anyway. But I think it's an important point. I think I've just exhausted now that if you're defending so one of these cases, to... we'll go back to motive. If you're, if you're defending yeah. one of these cases, you have to pay particular attention to whether the particular complainant, given whatever the age, could have been exposed to and how. And then you have to have actually real evidence of that somehow by interviewing people in the family or, or other individuals. But it can happen, and the internet is very insidious now, so that there's lots of ways to garner this information than it was many, many years ago. Now, most importantly, let's talk about motive or absence of motive. So motive is always a big issue when we go to trial on, on sexual assault, domestic violence, things. Yes, please. Um, and there's some really important case law about motive. The first most important thing is the... The it's okay, Zubering. <laughs> uh, the most important thing 
drink up, Liam. <laughs> um, is that uh, <laughs> sorry, snorted? <laughs> okay, go ahead. The, the most important thing with with motive, and this is this is really serious, though. No, it is. Um, and it's called the the forbidden question. Why would she lie? Right. So motive. The defense does not have to say, you know, sometimes complainants who have admitted that they have lied didn't know why they did it, right? Yeah. So it reverses, and it's, it's a very subtle way, but it reverses the burden of proof to say that the defense has to provide some sort of motive for why the person would lie. Um, that said, everybody does wonder, why would they lie, right? We always know that it's there. And when, where there is a motive, it's important to, to flesh that out properly and, and fully. But there's a very big difference between having a, a motive to lie, having a unknown motive to lie, we, we don't know if there is one or not, and having a proven absence of motive. And a proven absence of motive is should be a very high bar. And that's where the Crown gets to the stage in a proceeding where they can actually argue that there's, the a, evidence. that there's a yeah. proven absence of motive to fabricate, which then circumstantially supports the credibility of the complainant. And that's very powerful and very insidious because I find that to be it's only in rare cases and it must be a very high threshold it's, it's got to be a situation where the person had everything to lose and nothing to gain right and and it, and it has to be really one of those situations yeah. that that they're really in a situation that by coming forth they're not there's no gaining of anything there's there you know it, it you can't it's not even like getting back at the person it's it's there's just no motive, and in fact, it's done to their own detriment. Yeah, and sometimes you can have that important things. You know, in a close family situation where the one who comes forward with a, a complaint is completely ostracized by the family. Yeah. But, but here's my caveat to this: you never know. Mm-hmm. You never really know. Yeah. And when defending a sexual assault case, you know, you know, clients and other people who inquire with us often say, like, you know, they're just lying. You know, they're fabricating. And we, I have a bunch of character witnesses that will say yeah. that I'm a good person. And, and okay. I, Terrible idea. I've, I've always found, and, and you can't call it in sex assault cases anyways, but I've always found that in order to properly defend a sexual assault case, you've got to dig deep and try and get at the core of what's going on. Yeah. And it's hard. Um, and you need the cooperation of the client. Sometimes you need to speak to witnesses. You got to crack the client's phone, see if there's messages that they deleted. You know, get in there and dig and see what you can find. Because sometimes, you know, you find, you know, step by step as you slowly build, you find what may in fact be a fabrication and why it's being fabricated. Yeah, and quite often the, the client themselves is not capable of seeing it because they're coming in with their own perspective and, and their own understanding of what was going on at the time. And, and the other thing that concerns me is we so often deal with cases. You know, this case was an uncle and it may very well have been an argument that, that, that the majority of the Court of Appeal were considering in their mind that she may, because the household was a bit chaotic, the uncle may have been a bit um, unpleasant in the home verbally 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 unpleasant and not great to be there and there was conflict between uh the brother and sister because he was he was the uncle and so the child may have wanted him out right Mm -hmm. for good reason because you know the person might have been unpleasant in the household and we see this play out you know in 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 high conflict divorces where there's disputes over custody and parental alienation issues and kids are easily manipulated or used as pawns. And we have to be very, very, very careful about easily dismissing motive to fabricate 
and courts have to be more and more sensitive to it, in my opinion. It would be very helpful if the Supreme Court gave a little more uh, meat to their decisions to help clarify some of these mm -hmm. points. And was it you had some sort of thing you were saying before about a, a quote from uh, was it Eddie? Well, Greenspan? there was a, there was an appeal um, a long time ago that um, Edward Greenspan had said it was basically the judge had uh, had a one page sort of judgment convicting and attached the submissions of the prosecutor to it. And I think he said, if I'm quoting it correctly, to the Court of Appeal, the only judicial tool that was or instrument that was utilized in this case was a stapler. Um, and I'm not, hang on, I'm not, we're not saying the Supreme Court just used a stapler or a microphone. Um, but I, I think in cases like this, it's important for us to have more guidance and digging down a little bit more deeper. But of course, they're dealing with a heavy workload, but we are dealing with people's rights mm -hmm. and liberty. And I think we can't lose sight and, of that. And, and like I've used the term slippery slope, I'm just concerned that some of these decisions end up going down a slippery slope because there's no clarification on, on precisely what was okay and why. Mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, it's... No doubt we're going to be exploring this in further episodes. Absolutely. So... Uh, Cheers. What's that that we say at the end of it that I screw up all the time? Like, uh, subscribe, hit notifications. And share. And leave comments <laughs> and questions. And send questions because, again, we get lots of questions and we enjoy it. Thank you. Good night. Good night, guys.